Morning, friends. Let's pray together. Father, what a joy it is to be able to open your word and look into your word and read your word and study your word and be changed and impacted by your word. Father, we pray that we cannot do that on our own, cannot do that in our own strength, but we must rely upon the Holy Spirit. And so we pray for your help, Lord, that the Spirit would work in our hearts, that these words would not fall on deaf ears, that this uh, seed of your word would not fall on hard soil, uh, but that it would fall on uh, the soft ground, uh, Lord, that it might produce abundant fruit in our lives. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you, that today, Lord, might be the day of salvation in which your word would pierce their hearts for the first time, or that they might see the glory of Christ. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16 will be our passage for this morning. And so let me start by just reading that passage. This is a passage in which Jesus will call to himself 12 disciples. And then we'll talk about one of those 12 disciples in particular, Judas Iscariot. And so Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, hear the word of the Lord. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Judas Iscariot... Now, that name in and of itself is actually quite unremarkable. You see, Judas was a pretty common name back then, as evidenced by the fact that there is another Judas on this very list of disciples, right? Judas, the son of James. Uh, Just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Judah, think tribe of Judah, Uh, it means praise or Jehovah leads. And Iscariot... No one's quite certain exactly what it means, but it's probably just a rendering of man of Kerioth, meaning that he originally, his hometown was the town of Kerioth in southern Judea. And so the name Judas Iscariot, it's just distinguishing like that Judas, as opposed to all the other Judases running around, that Judas is a man of Kerioth. So it's a rather unremarkable name. And again, considering that the name Judas means praise or Jehovah leads, it's a nice name. But to us, of course, it's a name that has taken on a meaning of its own. If I say the name Neil Armstrong, immediately you think of the moon. If I say the name General So, immediately you think of chicken. When I say Judas... Instantly, right? Connotations, associations of treachery and backstabbing come to mind. And so every famous traitor and betrayer and disloyal person, whether it be Benedict Arnold or 
Marshall Patain or LeBron James, right? They have all been compared to Judas because Judas is the most infamous traitor of all time. And so, by the way, as far as names go, according to babycenter.com, Judas was the 6,539th most popular name last year. Judas, right? Because that name will forever be associated with what this disciple did. And you'll notice in our text that Luke makes that point right up front, even in how he introduces Judas here. Because the other disciples, like, look at that list. The other disciples, some of them were given a second name. Some of them were given a familiar relation. Uh, some of them were told who their father was. Only for Judas are we told about what he is going to do. He's Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Because that's what he's always going to be known for. Now, you know the, the rest of the story. I'm just kind of give you the, the cliff notes here, right? You know that after three years uh, of spending time as one of Judas's disciples, Judas goes to the high priests and basically asks them, what are you going to give me if I give Jesus to you? And so the religious establishment really wanted to get rid of Jesus. They really wanted to kill him. But they knew that they couldn't do anything during the day because he was so popular. And so they wanted to arrest him at night. But they needed someone on the inside to tell them where he was going to be and how they could identify him. Well, here comes Judas, one of the 12 disciples, to them. And so they say, well, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. You just lead us to him. And so Judas agrees as someone in his inner circle who knows exactly where he's going to be even late at night. Judas leads the chief priests and the Roman soldiers to Jesus on the Mount of Olives. He identifies him by giving him a kiss. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And that arrest, of course, leads to this sham trial in which Jesus is falsely convicted of blasphemy. And then, of course, he's handed over to the Romans to be crucified. And so the name Judas Iscariot goes down, etched in stone, as the most infamous traitor in human history. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul gives several negative examples from Old Testament history, from the Israelites' history. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10.6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. I think that same principle applies for New Testament figures and characters as well. But they serve us as examples. And as much as we can learn from the positive examples of, let's say, a, a Peter or a, or a Paul or a Barnabas, or of course our ultimate example would be Jesus Christ himself, I think there's also much that we can learn from a negative example of a Judas Iscariot. That we might not desire evil as he did. And so the question for us this morning is, what can we learn from the story of Judas Iscariot? Let me make three observations from our text about Judas, and that will uh, kind of serve as the three main points of our sermon this morning. And we're going to talk about specific ways in which this story of Judas Iscariot serves us, the people of God, as a warning. So first, three observations from this text in Luke 6 about Judas the first is that Judas was one of the twelve. 
And so if you're taking notes, point number one, Judas was one of the twelve. Look at verse 13. When day came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, including, of course, Judas Iscariot. There's something interesting to note if you ever kind of study through Luke's gospel as we've been doing at our church. Uh, This is the only time here in Luke chapter 6, before the betrayal that happens all the way towards the end of the gospel, this is the only time that Judas' name comes up. Matthew and Mark do the same thing in their gospels, which tells us, right, point number one, that Judas was just one of the twelve. Like, at least outwardly, how Luke records the years of ministry that Jesus and his disciples did together, Judas Iscariot was completely indistinguishable from the other 11 disciples. And so Judas himself is not mentioned by name again until Luke chapter 22, but we do have a lot of passages in between about what the 12 did. Look ahead just a few chapters to Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And who was with him? The twelve. Look at the next chapter, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then you look ahead a couple of verses to verse 6. Luke 9, 6, they, the 12 disciples, departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And what I want you to note is that the 12 referred to in all of those passages, that includes Judas Iscariot, because Judas was one of the 12. And so this may be very obvious, and I may be belaboring this self-evident point, but just stay with me here. Judas did all of the things that the other apostles did. He proclaimed the good news of the gospel, that Jesus had come to save his people. Judas had power and authority over demons and over diseases. He performed exorcisms. He healed the sick, right? Those miracles that would verify the message that they were preaching, the signs of a true apostle that would authenticate that they really were representing Jesus. They they really were sent out by Jesus. And so it's not like you've got like these 11 disciples, these 11 guys, like they're preaching the gospel and they're healing people left and right and they're casting out demons. And then there's this 12th guy. He's in their group, but he he always calls them sick whenever we're going out preaching. His healings and his exorcisms, they just never seem to work. Kind of like in Sesame Street, right? Like one of these things is not like the other. No, right? Judas did all of the same kinds of things that the other 11 disciples did because Judas was one of the 12. And when Jesus is talking to his disciples, you might remember this when Peter says, see, we have left everything and followed you. Well, guess what? That includes Judas. Again, it's not like you've got 11 guys, they gave up everything to follow Jesus, and now here's number 12, well, he's still running his business full-time, and he's taking frequent trips to go back home, and he's never really with us. No, Judas left his entire life behind. 
And that's especially true if we're right about Iscariot, meaning that he's from Kerioth all the way down in the south. He has left that life to move to do a ministry that primarily takes place all the way up in the north. You know when you're watching like a TV show or a movie and there's like a villain and he just looks like the bad guy? There's a a show that my kids love to watch. Uh, It's called Wild Kratz. Uh, There is this character. His name is Zach Varmatek. Okay, like if you've never seen the show before, that's okay. I'll catch you up. Like within two seconds of watching the show, you know that Zach Varmatek is the bad guy because he dresses in all black. He's got these really sinister looking eyes. He's got this like evil villain soul patch thing going on. Like you just know that he's the bad guy. He looks like the bad guy. He talks like the bad guy. Everything that comes out of his mouth is an evil scheme to take over the world. He is bad and he's obviously bad. That's not Judas. As a matter of fact, for three years, you could not tell the difference between him and the other 11. And we have several proofs of that. I know you guys have been going through the Gospel of John. What does John tell us Judas did? Well, amongst the disciples, Judas was the treasurer. The treasurer in any organization, it's going to be a person who is trustworthy, who's reliable. Who's above reproach? Who do they pick? Well, they're not picking the, the, the Zach Varmatex of the world. No, they're picking reliable, trustworthy Judas. And if you think about it, I mean, among the disciples, you, if you're just selecting a treasurer based on maybe worldly skills, like who's got the finance background? Well, you've got a tax collector, Matthew, maybe you would ask him. Or if you're just looking for an honest guy, well, how about Nathaniel? Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. He'd be great too, but it's not him either. You get my point. Judas Iscariot was trusted. He was viewed as honest by the other disciples. A second proof that you couldn't tell the difference between him and the other 11 is that when Jesus told the disciples, right before he's betrayed, one of you is going to betray me. They weren't like, so obvious, I knew it all along, it was Judas. No, they had no idea. When Jesus tells the 12 that one of them is going to betray, what, does he, what do they say? Uh, John 13, 22. They looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and then what do they ask? They don't ask, is it Judas, Lord? Instead, they ask, Is it I, Lord? And then when Jesus reveals who's going to betray him by by dipping the bread and giving it to Judas, and then he says to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly, they're still confused, John 13, 28. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, remember he's a treasurer, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. These guys, these guys had spent every waking moment of the last three years with Judas. Like if anybody was going to be on to him, it was these guys, but they were absolutely clueless. Judas was one of the twelve. And I want you to see this, how Luke goes out of his way later in the gospel to kind of make this point. 
that Judas was one of the 12. Turn over real quick to Luke 22. I think this is fascinating. Luke 22.3, right? This is the next time we see Judas after chapter 6. Luke 22.3, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. He was one of the 12. Now, look down to verse 47. So this is the same chapter. We know Luke is not telling us this because it's new information and we need to know it. No, he is repeating this to make a point. Look at Luke 22.47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12. Luke, you just told us that in verse 3, that he was one of the 12. But he's making a point. Point number one, Judas was one of the 12. You see, Judas fit in really, really well. He fooled everybody. Well, almost everybody. John 6, 64 Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. And then a few verses later in John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, it says this, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knew, but to everyone else, point number one, Judas was just one of the twelve. Our second observation, point number two, is that Judas became a traitor. Luke 6.16, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Became meaning that he was not from the beginning a traitor. He's not like, it's not like he's got this sinister plot uh, from the beginning to be a mole within Jesus' most intimate circle, like a spy who's going to try to take down the group from the inside. No, he became a traitor. And also notice that it's not just that he betrayed Jesus, it's that he became a traitor, right? So it's not just what he did, it's who he was. Like the New Testament does not portray Jesus, uh, sorry, Judas. The New Testament does not portray Judas as an otherwise sincere disciple who just impulsively made a really regrettable, bad decision one day. Now, over time, in spite of how he appeared to the outside, in spite of how he appeared to everyone watching, over time, his heart was further and further and further drawn away from Christ until... He became a traitor. So what happened? How did Judas become a traitor? Well, I think there's a few dots that we ought to connect here. First, we know from the Gospels that Judas was a lover of money. You know the story when Mary, uh, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, when they're hosting Jesus for dinner and she breaks open the perfume and anoints Jesus with it, and apparently, right, this isn't one of those like cheap colognes you can buy on the street. This is like really absurdly expensive perfume. And Judas gets upset. And John tells us why. Right? Remember John 12, 6? Because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Well, you may be familiar with 1 Timothy 6, 10. The love of money 
It's a root of all kinds of evils, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Okay, Judas Iscariot, how did you wander away from the faith and pierce yourself with many pangs? The answer, the love of money. Apparently betraying the Son of God falls into that category of all kinds of evils induced by the love of money. He sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. So we know for sure about his love of money, and perhaps that was kind of mixed with a disappointment about who Jesus was, what kind of king and messiah he was. See, many Jews back then, Judas would not have been alone in this. Many Jews expected Jesus to come and overthrow the Romans by power and by by force, establish his kingdom. So over time, they became disenchanted with him because instead of talking about conquest and might, all he would talk about was his sufferings and death. They wanted a powerful ruler. What they got was the suffering servant. And so perhaps that disillusionment mixed with his greed contributed to Judas becoming a traitor. Observation number three, sorry, observation number two is that Judas became a traitor. Observation number three, point number three, is that Jesus chose Judas. Look again at Luke 6, 13. When day came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from them 12. Which means he chose Judas Iscariot. Now that should leave you with a major question. If Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, remember John 6, 64, Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. So if Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, why would Jesus choose Judas? Well, listen to Jesus' own words on the night that he was betrayed. This is what he says about his choosing of Judas. John 13, 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a prophecy from Psalm 41, 9 about his betrayal. That someone in his inner circle, who proverbially eats his bread, is going to lift his heel against him. And that prophecy, that scripture, Jesus says, will be fulfilled. That's why Jesus chose Judas, knowing that he would betray him, to fulfill the scriptures. And then even bigger picture, right, to fulfill the plan of God as revealed in the scriptures. Friends, this is, I think, crucial for us to understand. The betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot, this is not some sad story about a helpless victim. Oh, poor Jesus. Poor helpless Jesus, stabbed in the back by one of his closest companions. No, quite the opposite. The betrayal, and for that matter, everything that followed it, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, all of it was exactly according to God's plan and prophecy. 
Jesus' plan and prophecy. I think the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke, the book of Acts is especially clear on this. If you're a fast flipper, you can flip along with me. Acts 1.16, we're talking specifically here about Judas' betrayal. Acts 1.16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. The scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And so Jesus chose Judas knowing full well that he would betray him exactly according to Scripture. How about Acts 2.23? Right? Judas was the one who ultimately, through his betrayal, delivered Jesus. But whose plan was it? Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now we got him on the ropes. Here's a knockout punch. Acts 4.27 now we're not just talking about Judas's role. We're talking about the whole thing, everything that happened with regards to Jesus's death. Acts 4:27 and 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so, yes, the story of Judas is a tragic story of betrayal. But much more than that, the story of Judas is a story of the sovereign plan of God. How everything happened according to his plan and his purpose. And that's why, point number three, Jesus chose Judas. But before we move on, Let's take a moment to answer another question that inevitably follows, I think. If it is true that point number three, Jesus chose Judas, like if Judas was predestined to fulfill prophecy in this way, well, is Judas still responsible for his actions? The short answer is yes. Luke 22, verse 22 for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. And so the betrayal, the arrest, all of that is happening to fulfill prophecy and in accordance with the plan of God, right? As it has been determined, Jesus chose Judas. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Woe to Judas. It would have been better for him not to be born. And so, yes, Judas is absolutely responsible. And so, yes, Judas will be in hell for eternity. Right? Once one of the 12 closest men to Jesus in his earthly life, now he's forever resigned to the depths of hell, as far removed from the glories of heaven as one could possibly be. We need to be careful here, lest we misunderstand this concept of Judas's responsibility. Because Judas was not a good man who wanted to do good but was forced to go against his good nature, like God forced him to sin against his will. No, not at all. Judas was an evil man with an evil nature. He became a traitor. He loved money. And God just gave him over to his sin. God removed his restraining hand of grace so that Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do. 
sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so Judas is 100% responsible for his actions. Now maybe a second follow-up question. Is that fair? Well, since God is in control of all things, and he has ordained all things that have come to pass, was that fair? Well, that's exactly the question that Paul asks in Romans chapter 9. Let me read from Romans 9, verses 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Hey, this story of Judas Iscariot, is there injustice on God's part? And the answer, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so Pharaoh then is not all that unlike Judas. God chooses him, God raises him up, that he might oppose God and his plans, right? so that God might display his power. And Pharaoh, he's also an evil man who wanted to do that evil. And God just gives him over to his sin. And so God's sovereignty in no way takes away from man's responsibility, whether it's Pharaoh or Judas, for his own sin. In verse 18, so he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Just like God hardened Pharaoh's heart even as Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, similarly, God hardened Judas's heart even as Judas hardened his own heart. And so Pharaoh and Judas are both responsible for their sin even though God is completely sovereign over both the exodus and the crucifixion. Point number three, Judas, Jesus rather, chose Judas. So with those three observations from this text in mind, Judas was one of the twelve. Judas became a traitor, and Jesus chose Judas. Let's go back to what we said at the outset. The the, the example of Judas, as it's presented to us in the scriptures, it ought to serve us as a gracious warning that we might not desire evil as he did. Specifically, I think his example warns us of three things that we might be tempted to equate with salvation that are not actually salvation. Let me explain. The first warning that I think we can take away from the life of Judas, the story of Judas, is that listening to good teaching is not salvation. Warning number one, listening to good teaching is not salvation. There were only 11 men on planet Earth who could have credibly claimed to have been around the things of God as much as Judas Iscariot was. I mean, he spent every waking moment with Jesus. He followed Jesus everywhere he went. He must have seen hundreds of miracles. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He saw Jesus feed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. And yet none of that had any effect on Judas' heart. As a matter of fact, his heart only grew harder and harder. But I don't want to focus on those things right now because 
I mean, as I look around, I don't think any of us have ever followed Jesus around while he walked on earth, and uh, we haven't witnessed any of his miracles. But what we do have in common with Judas, just like Judas in those three years, well, you have heard good teaching. And when I say good teaching, I'm not just referring to like public speaking ability or charisma as much as I'm referring to just sound biblical truth. We have heard good teaching, biblical teaching. Hopefully even this morning, right? And those of you who attend this church, like I know that you have heard lots and lots of good, faithful, biblical teaching from this pulpit from your pastor. And so you say, well, of course I'm a Christian. Of course my walk is going well as a Christian. I listen to sermons all the time. I'm here every Sunday. I listen to podcasts. I listen to sermon audio. I listen to good sermons all the time. Well, friends, so did Judas. Do you realize, three years of being with Jesus every single day, like how many good sermons Judas must have heard? And when I say good sermons, right, that's like a massive understatement. We're talking about the holy and pure and perfect wise words that came out of Jesus' mouth, right? The very words on which every other good sermon is based. And we can't just limit it to what we have recorded in the scriptures. If everything Jesus said were written, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so uh, Judas heard so much more of Jesus' teaching than we could ever read. And yet his heart was hardened and he became a traitor. I mean, just picture this in your mind's eye. Just, just imagine the scene in your mind. Jesus is out there. His disciples are all around him, and he's teaching about money. He taught a lot about money. Jesus is teaching that no one can serve two masters. You cannot love and serve both God and money. He's saying take care uh, because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Meanwhile, Judas Iscariot is sitting right there. He's been stealing from the money bag. What is going on in his mind? Is this touching his heart at all? Like, is there even an ounce of conviction and guilt as he's hearing this perfectly wise teaching? Or is his heart so hard that it just bounces right off? Or maybe one day Jesus is teaching on the dangers of hypocrisy. How performing outwardly, even while your heart is far from God, how that makes you like whitewashed tombs, outwardly appearing beautiful, but inside full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus reserves some of his strongest condemnations in his teaching for hypocrites. And it's like, Judas, are you listening? Is anything that he's saying getting through to your heart? Friends, that is a powerful reminder that unless God gives ears to hear, unless God the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, a good sermon in itself is going to do nothing 
It's just the seed that falls on the bad soil that produces absolutely no fruit. Friends, Judas serves us as a gracious warning that sitting under good teaching, listening to sermon after sermon, Bible study after Bible study, podcasts and all that, does not necessarily equal salvation. And as a matter of fact, I think we can take it one step further. The same sermons and Bible studies and podcasts that God uses to sanctify and soften the hearts of his people can also harden the hearts of the unsaved. Warning number one, listening to good teaching is not salvation. Warning number two, having a good reputation among God's people is not salvation. Having a good reputation among God's people is not salvation. Remember, Judas wasn't just one of the 12, like number 12 out of 12. You know, the, the mediocre, half-hearted, nobody really likes him disciple. Like, if we were doing cuts, he'd be the first one to be cut. No, Judas had a really good reputation among the 12. Nobody, none of the other 11 disciples suspected him. They even saw fit to make him the treasurer. And let's step out from the 12 for a second to any outsider right, looking in at the 12, right? He's one of the 12. He's one of the guys going around preaching and casting out demons and doing all kinds of miracles. Like He is in the exalted inner circle. But you take all of that reputation... And it was all just a mask of hypocrisy. And he fooled everybody. He fooled everybody, but Jesus saw right through it. And at the end of the day, none of that reputation counted for an ounce in the judgment. Friends, I know some of you, I don't know some of you, but perhaps there are some of us here today where what we're actually counting on for our salvation is our reputation among God's people. Like, whether it's thinking that it's our membership in a gospel-preaching church like this, why are you going to heaven? Because I'm a member of a good church. Or maybe it's an office that you hold, or, or a ministry that you run within that church. Or maybe it's just your general reputation among the community as a solid Christian man or, or a solid Christian woman. And that's ultimately what you're trusting in. Well, friend, that's sinking sand. And maybe there's no better illustration of that than Judas Iscariot, who in one sense was very much one of the twelve. But in a much more important and eternal sense... He was nothing like them. Warning number two, having a good reputation among God's people is not salvation. Third warning, doing great works for Jesus is not salvation. I think we're all familiar with Matthew chapter 7. But I want you to think about it as I read it. I want you to think about it specifically in the context of Judas Iscariot. Think of Judas standing before the Lord. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And it's like, yes, you did, Judas. You did all of those things. You prophesied and you cast out demons and you did many mighty works in the name of Jesus. And in your case, you were specifically commissioned by Jesus to do those mighty works. But what does Jesus say to one like Judas, for whom all of that was just a show? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Judas, I never knew you. You did great things for me, but I never knew you. Brothers and sisters, these warnings should be sobering. Because here's the thing about each of these warnings. Listening to good teaching, having a good reputation among God's people, and doing great works for Jesus. They're all wonderful things. They're all good and godly things that the people of God should be pursuing earnestly, wholeheartedly. But that's also why they're so dangerous. Because the pursuit of those things can come from a genuine desire to know God more through good teaching and to love and be amongst God's people and to serve him and glorify him him through good works. But the pursuit of those things can also come, as in the case of a Judas Iscariot, while hiding behind a cloak of hypocrisy, so that to all outside eyes, all must be well. But on the inside, despite all outward appearances, on the inside, you're completely spiritually dead. And those things, the good sermons, The good works, the good reputation, all they do is to shield you and hide you more and more. Now sometimes the difference is going to be obvious to people. People will be able to see right through you. But sometimes you can go three full years in the daily company of 11 other committed disciples and completely pull the wool over their eyes to the very end without any of them knowing. So if none of those things is equal to salvation, well, we're kind of like the Philippian jailer at this point, right? Like, what must I do to be saved? Thankfully, that answer has never changed. I believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Listening to good teaching, that is not salvation. Having a good reputation amongst God's people, that is not salvation. Doing great works for Jesus, that is not salvation. So what is trusting Jesus and Jesus alone? That is salvation. And so Judas did those first three things. He heard the teaching, he had the reputation, he did the works. But the one thing that he never did was fully trust Christ fully trusting that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That he took upon himself all of the sins of his people that they might be forgiven, and in exchange he gives them his perfect, unblemished 
righteous record. Fully trusting that it's because of what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection, because of what Jesus did alone, that sinners can be saved. Fully renouncing any goodness in us, renouncing any good works that we might think would contribute to that salvation, uh, fully renouncing all of the good sermons that we've heard as the basis of our salvation, all of our reputation as the basis of our salvation, all of the things that we think we've done for God as the basis of our salvation, none of that, only Jesus and what Jesus has done for my soul. That alone. You see, Judas never did that. And so despite all of the other things that he did do, well, he is the son of destruction. Here's the thing. At the end of the day, like if you're smart enough, and you're clever enough, if you're a good enough hypocrite, you can probably get away with it. You can fool a person sitting next to you. You can fool your spouse and children. You can fool your parents. You definitely fool your pastors. Judas Iscariot, you can fool the 11 disciples. You can fool the watching world. But there is one person you can't fool. There was one person who Judas could not fool. And it happens to be the one to whom each of us must give account. And so in that sense, it's, he's the only one that matters the Lord Jesus Christ. We are naked and exposed before him. And so I plead with you, if if today you feel as though your hypocrisy has been unmasked by the word of God, if you've been brought to the end of yourself and you realize you are trusting in something apart from Christ alone for salvation, well, friends, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can repent, that you can just throw off this hypocritical facade and truly find rest and forgiveness and salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is indeed sharper than any two-edged sword and how it pierces into our hearts to reveal what is there. Father, we pray that your word would continue to do that work even as we uh, pray and as we sing and as we dismiss. Uh, Father, that uh, even in this afternoon and this evening, Lord, that you would not give us rest in our hearts until we have looked to Christ alone for our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.